Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Among the dozens of mandates in recent executive orders, there's a bunch about artificial intelligence. Among them, a requirement for agencies to inventory their AI use cases for purposes of cybersecurity. Perhaps strangely, the Homeland Security Department put together an inaccurate list. That's according to the Government Accountability Office, which found a few problems. More now from the GAO's Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, good to have you back. Thanks again for having me. And so their list of AI use cases for cybersecurity was somehow inaccurate. Is this a big deal or a little deal? Well, we think it was important to really take a look at how DHS was implementing AI for cybersecurity use cases. They had an overall inventory of 21 AI use cases in their 2022 inventory, and they identified two specifically related to cyber. This was a first attempt for GAO to apply its AI accountability framework, uh, which was developed in 2021. And so with agencies beginning to publish their inventories, we thought it was a good time to start taking a look at their efforts to implement AI. Right. So this framework then was developed way ahead of the executive order on artificial intelligence. Indeed. We recognize that with the growing use of AI and lots of interest and curiosity about it, we thought it was important that there be a framework to help entities, uh, particularly those who have an oversight role, but also those who are managing and overseeing AI projects, to be able to identify key practices and considerations that should be thought of as they're developing, designing, and deploying such systems. And before we get to the list of cybersecurity-related use cases, you have a long list of best practices. I think there were something like 16 of them and DHS was only following four of them. Tell us about the elements of the framework and what they help an agency accomplish. So the framework is actually organized around four key principles, governance, data, performance, and monitoring. And really with these practices, the framework is really to help ensure that there's accountable and responsible use of AI. The particular systems that we identified that DHS had on its inventory, again, there were 21 overall, but there were two that they identified as being cyber-related. As we set about to do our work, we began having conversations and discussions with the agency officials, and it became quite apparent that one of the two systems that they'd identified related to cyber actually did not have characteristics of AI at all. And so through our discussions with the agency, you know, we thought it was important for them to really take a look at the processes that they had in place for determining what systems actually end up on their AI use case inventory. Well, do you think that they were characterizing something as AI, even if it was not, just as a way of saying, oh, yeah, we're doing AI here in cybersecurity? I think there's just been so much attention and focus on it of late. People may not necessarily have the necessary background to fully take the necessary steps to assess whether or not the system truly is or the capability truly is AI. And so given a lot of the attention and focus that's been happening, you know, certainly there's a rush to submit information for these use case inventories. But it's really important that if you have individual components within an agency submitting such information, that there be a body that is verified and validating the submissions and ensuring that they really are characteristic of AI use cases. Right. Agencies maybe could be running into the tendency to just characterize simple automation or even orchestrated multiple automations as AI when it's not really strictly AI. 
Exactly. And so one of the models that we identified and that they acknowledged was not AI, was one that had a predictive modeling component, but certainly was not AI as we explored that in in greater detail with the agency. And if they have mischaracterized one of their inventory items, then what's the practical effect of that? Well, we think it's important that if agencies are going to be publishing this information and making it available to the public to indicate what their use cases are, that that information be accurate, it be complete, and that it be reliable, because that's a really important element in establishing transparency, but more importantly, instilling public trust and confidence. We're speaking with Candace Wright. She's Director of Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the GAO. And the fact that just a couple out of one agency's sample was inaccurate Could that be an indicator that there's maybe something systemic in the government that needs to be tightened up? Well, it definitely raises the question that perhaps, you know, more should be done to take a look at what use cases were submitted and ensure that it is accurate and that necessary updates are occurring. And again, you have uh, DHS fully implementing four of 11 key practices that are related to those governance, data, performance, and monitoring areas. So even if those applications actually were AI, they still weren't executing up to snuff. Exactly. And so we specifically analyzed and reviewed 11 practices in the agency's implementation of their system, which ended up being the automated PII detection system. And so we focused on looking at that uh, to identify the ways in which they were implementing these practices. As you mentioned, they were fully implemented four, but had mixed results in implementing the remaining seven. One of the things that we identified is that data sources and reliability in particular were the areas that required the most attention. And much of this was because that we really couldn't find any evidence that the agency had addressed any of the key considerations for documenting the sources of the data and the origins of the data for the system. And in addition to that, we also found that they didn't have any evidence that any uh, data reliability assessments had been conducted. So those are pretty basic practices for careful AI. Well, the underlying data is such a key element, especially when you're going to be using these systems to make recommendations, make decisions. And so it's important to ensure that the underlying data are sound and that they are representative of the uh, solution that you're trying to attain. And what were your main recommendations for Homeland in this case? So for DHS, with respect, again, to the one system that we were actually able to review because we could confirm that it was AI, we made eight recommendations for them to really focus on, first of all, updating their inventory to make sure that it is accurate, make sure that they're expanding their process to not just receive information from their components that something is AI and should be on the inventory, but really to validate the accuracy of that submission. In addition, uh, with respect to the other issues that we identified around governance, around data, as well as performance and monitoring, many of the recommendations there were about ensuring that they have the appropriate documentation to provide evidence, especially for those in the oversight community, but also for the agency as well, who's managing and overseeing the implementation of the system, because you'll often have people coming and going on these systems. And so you want to make sure that you have that documentation to be able to refer back to as the system is being developed, but more importantly, being launched and operated so that you can ensure that it's operating as intended and achieving the expected outcomes. And they pretty much went along with you? Yes. So the agency actually did agree uh, and concur with the eight recommendations. And so we'll be monitoring that over time to see how they implement the recommendations. And will you be looking at other agencies' inventories to make sure that they characterize AI that really is AI and then are following the best practices? 
Well, I certainly can say that AI oversight is going to be a, a huge part of our work going forward for the foreseeable future. Again, as you look at the ways in which agencies are starting to adopt use of the technology. Last year, we actually had another team that issued a government-wide review on agencies' implementation across the 23 largest civilian agencies. And there they found that over 1,200 use cases had been identified by these agencies. So we'll be continuing to monitor what's happening there uh, in that report report, we actually made 35 recommendations to 19 different agencies, so a lot to look at. And certainly there's a lot of congressional action and attention on this topic, so more to come in the future. And by the way, even though you are a congressional agency, does GAO have an inventory and would you live up to what you ask of the agencies on there? Well, certainly GAO is also walking the talk on this topic. Uh, we actually published recently published our inventory of AI use cases where we have about eight use cases that we have identified. Um, they're in different stages of concept exploration to prototyping. Uh, one project in particular organizes large volumes of text that might be found in various public documents, such as public comments from regulations.gov. And we think that these are really important steps to help us in gaining insight about the benefits and the limitations of using AI, but more importantly, that it can help us in evaluating how other agencies are using AI and help us in providing our oversight support to Congress. Fundamentally, agencies have to understand what is AI and what is not AI as the basic step in getting better at AI. There certainly is going to be a need to make sure that we're building knowledge within the federal government to understand the technology, and as you said, what is or isn't, but more importantly, ensuring it's responsible practices to develop the system, design the system, deploy it, monitor it, and ensure that it's performing as desired and intended. You might say AI is a hammer, but not everything out there is a nail. That's certainly one way to look at it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Candace Wright is Director of Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to join our Artificial Intelligence and Data Exchange. Today's guests for Day 2 include experienced AI users from DARPA, NIH, and the State Department. Find the webinar at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.